Ezekiel 40 in your Bibles. We come to the final recorded prophecy of Scripture, or of Ezekiel, excuse me, beginning in Ezekiel 40 and spanning all the way to the end of the book, 48. This is, however, not actually the, the, the latest prophecy in the book. If you recall way back when, that outline that we had on the book of Ezekiel, you would find that the prophecy of Ezekiel 40-48 is the twelfth prophecy as far as chronologically. But there is a thirteenth found way back in Ezekiel 29-17-30-19. through 30, 19. This prophecy, the second to last prophecy chronologically, the final prophecy as far as book order is concerned, begins 12 years after the prophecy that we finished looking at last week. Recall we had been in that prophecy for several weeks. We had seen all the way back um, to Ezekiel chapter 32, the beginning of, excuse me, 33, the beginning of that prophecy, as far as the date is given, and all the way through 39, uh, through 39, Ezekiel 39, it had been the same date, the day that Israel or that Jerusalem had fallen, the day that Ezekiel had received his voice again. So this prophecy is 12 years after that long string of prophecies about Israel's restoration. 12 years after the promises of God to Gog and Magog. It's been a full 19 years and 6 months since Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry. 12 full years since God had said anything to Ezekiel. 12 full years since the temple had been destroyed. 12 years into the 70 years of captivity that we read about in the books of Daniel and Jeremiah. And in these last nine chapters, Ezekiel 40 through 48, we see a vision of a temple. It's a temple unlike anything that has ever been seen in Jerusalem as far as history is concerned. Its size and its scale are massive. And its description is at a time of peace where God Himself is ruling from the temple. As I mentioned last week, these chapters read more like an architectural diagram than they read necessarily like scriptural teaching. It is prophecy, prophecy that as far as we're concerned and as far as history bears out, is yet to be fulfilled. Now, as we go through this this evening, you're going to see um, diagrams up on the screen behind me of everything that will be going on, of all that we'll be looking at. For those of you that are here uh, at the live congregation, that's great. For those of you that are listening online later, um, that's not going to help you very much. If you are listening to this message online and you are going to attempt to follow me, um, you may just very well fall asleep because you're not going to have a whole lot of context if you're not looking at some of these diagrams. So, you have a few options. As I'm describing it, you can draw it out yourself. That would be difficult, but it would help you, I'm sure. 
Number two, if you have a good commentary set, you can probably open it to Ezekiel 40 through 44, and you will find the diagrams of which we speak. Number three, it will be my intent to put this message up on YouTube with the visual diagrams in place so that those of you listening online, if you follow the link on the website underneath the title for this sermon, then you will be able to get it on YouTube and perhaps listen to the message while looking at the diagrams that I am using this evening. I trust that would be significantly more helpful to you. And this will happen again a little bit next week, not to the same extent that this evening's message. This week we're focusing far more on the temple itself. Next week we're focusing far more on the land and the worship However, there will still be several diagrams and maps that will be of a benefit to you. And so, we are speaking of a temple. And you've heard me mention many times that this is what we believe to be the Millennial Temple. We believe that because its massive size and scale is unlike anything that could even fit upon the Temple Mount today. We believe that because it's at a time where the glory of the Lord has returned to the Temple. We believe it because it's at a time of peace. We believe it because it's at a time where Israel has received their land inheritance. We believe it because everything has yet to come to pass and according to the prophetic map of Scripture, it will not happen, it will not come to pass until Israel was saved, which is the day that Jesus Christ comes in His second advent and touches His feet upon the Mount of Olives and God's people finally look upon Him whom they have pierced and believe on His name. So, please take for granted with me that this is the Millennial Temple. In the next many weeks, after Ezekiel 40-44, to 45-48, we'll get into prophecy, and I will hope to help you see the perspective on that. But for now, please take it for granted. Please join me in looking at Ezekiel chapter 40. We'll read the first five verses. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, In the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. In the visions of God brought He me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was the frame of a city on the south. And He brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a, fa- with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I show thee, for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about And in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and an handbreadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. We begin our prophecy and this temple um, tour, if you will, at the eastern gate. The eastern gate, as we would look at the temple complex, And this would be the outer eastern gate, beyond the outer court, beyond the pavement, to the gate that would face east. That was the direction that the temple was called upon by God to face. 
And this is where we begin our journey. They begin by measuring based upon a cubit. Now, a cubit could either be 18 or 21 inches, depending upon the rendition or the time in which uh, the cubit was measured. As best historians can tell, the cubit that's being spoken of here is probably the 21-inch cubit. So as he measures this um, wall, the uh, breadth of the building and the height of the building, that would be the building of the gate, he measures it as being one reed by one reed. One reed in breadth, one reed in height. And they say the reed was a cubit long by the cubit and and hand breadth. So six, excuse me, six cubits long. Six cubits times 21 inches. The one cubit is almost two feet. So we're talking somewhere around 10 feet here um, would be that reed length. I'm going to try to give you some of the contemporary and feet measurements that this would have been rounded, of course. And that should give us an idea of what we're speaking of here. And so we begin uh, in verses 6 through 16 with the description of the gate complex. He says, Then came he unto the gate which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. So we had the entrance, which was one reed by one reed, and we have the threshold, which is one reed by one reed. And you'll see there that that's approximately 10.5 feet is what our measurement will be. There were several windows, several alcoves for the keepers, and verses 6 through 16 are a description of this entire complex. There was a porch on the far side. You see some of the measurements there. 87.5 feet was the total length of the gate complex. This would have been uh, very well known to Israel in the day. A long gate with alcoves on either side, alcoves for uh, with windows there for, for um, people to sit in the gate, for people to judge, for people to um, guard admittance, for actual guards in the gate, uh, perhaps for offerings, depending on the, the circumstances. All of this was in that gate complex. He says in verse 7, And every little chamber was one reed long and one reed broad, and between the little chambers were five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate within was one reed. He measured also the porch of the gate within one reed. He Then measured he the porch of the gate eight cubits. So we're just measurement after measurement, and the angel is slowly but and methodically measuring every portion of this temple. And that's what Ezekiel 40 through 44, by and large, is going to be a measurement by measurement rendition of the entire temple complex. And so as we continue, verses 17 through 27, he describes the outer pavement of the court as having 30 rooms along the walls, probably 10 rooms per wall along the three gates. Let me get my pointer here, and that may help us out as we are walking through all of this. And so probably 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 10 rooms on each wall spanning the three outer walls where there were gates. You have the eastern gate, you have the southern gate, and you have the northern gate. And so there would be those chambers along what this calls the mosaic 
pavement. The distance from the outer court to the inner court, as it's described, going from each gate to the inner gate, from the outer gate to the inner gate, was 175 feet. Now, a football field is about 300 feet. So it's a little bit better than 50 yards long from when you get to the inside of the outer gate to when you get to the outside of the inner gate. I'll hope to give you a little bit more perspective on this, but think about it. That's really big. Um, we, are, we are spanning some distance here and we're not even to the inner court of the tabernacle yet. This is simply the outer court that we have walked through as we get through the gate 175 feet to the entrance to the inner gate to the temple of the Lord. God describes this, as I mentioned, for all three of the gates, the same dimensions, each the same distance to the inner gate. God then describes the inner gate of the south. It's interesting that he begins with the south gate. He doesn't continue with the east gate. We'll find out why in a little bit. But he continues with the southern gate and he describes it and what you will find is that it has the exact same dimensions and the exact same design as the outer gate. So we've got our three gates, our three outer gates, 175 feet to the three inner gates, which have the exact same design and the exact same measurements as the outer gate. If you were an architect in this room, you'd probably be drooling over all this, but you're not. So um, just stick with me. In chapter 40, verses 32 through 38, God describes the northern and eastern gates, and as I mentioned, they have the same dimensions. Northern gate, eastern gate, in that order, the same dimensions as the southern gate, which have the same dimensions as the three outer gates. Chapter 40, verses 39 through 43, describe the porch of the north gate. And this is where things do change a little bit. The porch of the north gate was the exclusive porch where the burnt offerings were washed. There would be eight tables on this particular porch. It's the same place as all of the other porches on all of the other gates. Those porches would have had perhaps some other function. They're not described what the functions are, but the inner gate, northern porch, had eight tables. And the scriptures describe those eight tables as being where burnt offerings are washed. Please take a look with me in verse 39 of chapter 40. Scriptures say, And in the porch of the gate were two tables on this side and two tables on that side to slay thereon the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. And at the side without, as one goeth up to the entry of the north gate, were two tables. And on the other side, which was at the porch of the gate, were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gate, eight tables, whereupon they slew their sacrifices. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering of a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high whereupon also they laid the instruments wherewith they slew the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. And within were hooks and hand broad, fastened round about, and upon the table was the flesh of the offering. And so he's describing this, and what 
should also jump out to us is that within this temple complex, there will be sacrifices. There will be physical sacrifices. We'll talk about that um, later on in the book of Ezekiel, why it is that we would expect sacrifices in the millennium when sacrifices were intended to be a foreshadowing of the remission of sins through Christ. If Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law, if Jesus Christ was the final blood shed for mankind, then why would it be that we would need sacrifices in the millennium? Why will there be sacrifices? We'll talk about that when we get there. This was also the gate, not just where the sacrifices would be slain, but where the blood would be drained. And then the animals would be taken to the altar for burning after having been slain in the north gate. In chapter 40, verses 44 and 45, we see the description of two chambers. These chambers were in the corners of the inner court next to the two gates, the northern gate and the southern gate. And these chambers, the Scriptures tell us, were for the singers and the priests who kept the house. And they were, uh, the Scriptures described just inside the southern gate, just inside the northern gate, and saying that they faced one another. So they were in the same location on either side, um, but one was, of course, north and one was south. And that would have been a chamber for, the Scriptures say, the singers. Now, this particular rendering of the temple does not include these. However, I've circled where they would be. There was another one that did include these, but um, I'd already worked on this one. So we're going to stay with some consistency here. Um, uh, and this will be the one that we'll look at for everything else. So uh, for consistency's sake, I stuck with it. But those chambers would be right here and right here. They'd be facing one another. The singers would be there. Praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord, singing unto His name. Verses 48 and 49. We skip a couple of verses. Verses uh, 45, 46, 47 uh, continue. But 48 and 49 specifically describe the entrance to the temple itself. Describe stairs with pillars on either side. And we'll zoom into that in verses 1 and 2. Let me just read to you. Verses 45 through 49. And he said unto me, This chamber whose prospect is toward the south is for the priests and the keepers of the charge of the house. And the chamber whose prospect is toward the north is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are for the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. So he measured the cord an hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. So he did briefly measure a hundred cubits and a hundred cubits and then the four-square altar that was right before the house. And he says, And he brought me to the porch of the house, verse 48, and measured each post of the porch, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side, and the breadth of the gate was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits and the breadth 11 cubits. And he brought me by the steps whereby they went up to it, and there were pillars by the posts, one on this side and another on that side. Verses 1 and 2, we zoom in. Afterward, he brought me to the temple and measured the post, six cubits broad on the one side, six cubits broad on the other side, which was the breadth of the tabernacle. And the breadth of the door was ten cubits, and the side of the door were five cubits, 
and uh, on the one side and five cubits on the other side and he measured the length thereof 40 cubits and the breadth 20 cubits. So we're talking about pillars on either side of the entrance. You'll notice some of the measurements there. 8.75 feet for this initial entrance long. 24.5 feet wide from pillar to pillar. Uh, he also measures the width of that outer portico uh, in a little bit. The uh, inner entrance there to the temple was 35 feet wide by 21 feet long. And you'll notice that as we work into the temple complex itself, which we're not delving deeply into, you see that the first entrance is 24.5 feet wide. The next one, the next um, entryway is 17.5 feet wide. That's the entrance from, from the entrance of the temple into the outer sanctuary of the temple. And then going into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the entrance was only 10.5 feet wide. So it's almost um, a cone shape here or a triangular shape where the entrance begins wide and as you get closer to the glory of the Lord, as you, presence, as you get deeper into the temple, the entrances narrow. They become more exclusive, perhaps, is what's being described there. As each entrance is more narrow by a significant margin than the last. That entrance is what we see described uh, in these verses. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 41 jump into the inner sanctuary for just a very brief moment. Notice with me verse 3. Then went he inward and measured the post of the door, two cubits, and the door six cubits, and the breadth of the door seven cubits. So he measured the length thereof, twenty cubits, and the breadth twenty cubits before the temple. And he said unto me, This is the most holy place. This is the only place that we'll see where Ezekiel was not brought in. This is the only place you'll see where Ezekiel was left on the outside while the angel went in. The angel went into the most holy place. Ezekiel was not invited. It's 20 feet wide or 20 cubits wide by 20 cubits long, approximately 35 feet by 35 feet, significantly bigger than the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, significantly bigger than the Holy of Holies in Herod's temple, significantly bigger than the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. This is much larger than that. 35 by 35 square. The inner sanctuary, also called by the angel, the most holy place. In chapter 41, verses 5-11, through 11, Ezekiel then sees the storerooms that are surrounding the temple proper. You notice we're on the same chart. We're just walking around to different parts of that chart. And these seven verses describe 30 storerooms on each level and three levels tall. If you can imagine exactly how large this building is, how high this building would reach, that the, the, the storerooms are three stories. So there's 30 rooms around the temple and then another 30 on top of it and then another 30 on top of that. A absolutely 
massive complex here when you're thinking on the scale, perhaps not on the scale of some things that men have built today in a manner of speaking, but in the scale of uh, uh, worship place for God, what God had done in the past, this is very, very large. These probably would have functioned in the same way that the storerooms of Solomon's temple did um, to store the people's tithes, to store the people's offering, uh, offerings, to be a storehouse for the gifts of the people. Three stories surrounding the temple, creating a barrier, a wall almost, surrounding the temple proper. Continuing in verses 12 through 15, there's a building to the west of the temple proper. Along with giving the full dimensions of the temple here, he says the temple is 175 feet long by specifically 87.5 feet wide. That would just be the temple proper, 175 by 87. Recall the inner court is 100 cubits. This part here was 100 cubits by 100 cubits. So we know the inner court is 100 cubits wide. This, uh, the temple proper is 87.5 feet, excuse me, uh, feet long and wide. Uh, all, my, all these measurements as I'm converting from cubit to foot. Uh, 87.5 feet wide for the temple proper by 175 feet long, the temple proper. He also describes, however, a building facing the temple courtyard on the west side of the temple. Interestingly enough, there is no precedent for this building. There was never a building to the west of the temple in any of the temples that we've ever seen thus far. This building has no precedent, nor does it say what its function is. So, it's simply labeled on this chart, the West Building. We'll look forward in the millennium to finding out exactly what that building is for, because God has not told us as of yet. Verses 16 through 26 describe a piece of furniture within the temple itself. This is the only piece of furniture described. Typically speaking, you would have several pieces of furniture described in the tabernacle. You'd have the altar of incense. You would have the table of showbread. You would have um, the golden candlestick. They would speak of outside the temple complex proper, the altar and the golden la- or the bra- brazen laver. Uh, brazen, excuse me, the brazen altar and the laver, brass laver. And as those things would be described, um, we would perhaps expect them all to be found here, but we don't. We only see one piece of furniture described, and that piece of furniture is not even explicitly designated. It says it's an altar of some sort, We know it's not the altar of sacrifice. It's possibly the altar of incense. It measured 3.5 feet long by 3.5 feet wide. So it was square. And it was 5.5 feet high. That Ezekiel saw, saw no other furniture could be significant. Possibly this is signifying Several elements of the former temple worship were not present in the millennial temple. Several elements of that former temple may not necessarily be needed anymore as symbolic representations. 
However, it's quite possible that the prayers of the saints would still be lifted up unto God, and so the altar of incense might actually be something that would be necessary and proper in the Millennial Temple. Why it's not there, we don't rightly know. What this altar is is not explicitly stated, but the altar of incense would be a good, educated guess. Well, that leaves us, uh, that leaves chapter 41 and takes us into chapter 42. Verses 1 through 12 describe the rooms connected to the inner court. However, their entrances were from the outer court. The outermost rooms in this area were 87.5 feet long. The inner rows were 175 feet long, the same length as the temple proper. You notice in this particular diagram, they are offset a little bit. Who knows, maybe they were flush with the temple proper. Maybe they were offset, as this diagram shows. Either way, we see an outer entrance to these rooms with 87.5 feet for the outer rooms, 175 feet for the inner rooms. Like the storerooms, these rooms spanned three stories. So you take the flat chart here, you stack it three high, and that would be the amount of rooms that we're talking about here. So there would be staircases going from each level. And verses 13 through 14 tell us that within these rooms, the priests who approached the Lord would eat the most holy offerings as well they would store their garments here. The priests, before they would make sacrifices as per uh, the Mosaic Law, and uh, in similar fashion, we would assume, would change their garments, would cleanse themselves, and then would go before the altar to make their sacrifices. So they would have their changes of garments here, and this would be where they would go to prepare for their ministry. These would no doubt be priests of the line of Zadok, as no other priests were allowed to minister unto the Lord. We'll talk about that in a little bit. In chapter 42, verses 15 through 20, he then takes Ezekiel to the outside of the temple and measures the entire temple complex. And as he measures it, it ends up being 875 feet square. As we look at that, 875 feet long by 875 feet wide, 765,625 square feet of total space this temple complex will take up. And you notice I've highlighted in blue here, that would be the approximate, one blue square is the approximate breadth and length of a football field. And so we're talking just a little bit over 12, almost 13 football fields of size in this temple complex. This thing's very big. Um, very big. Something very exciting happens as we transition into chapter 43. We're moving right along here. I'm skipping much of this as far as reading is concerned. I would encourage you perhaps to go back and read this. However, um, it is a, just a great deal of measurements. And really, until you've charted it out and plotted it out, you're not going to get a grand feel 
for exactly what is being said here. Well, it's at this point that things really get interesting. Chapter 43. Look with me, beginning in verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looked toward the east. So we end up back at the eastern gate. Verse 2 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar. And I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Ezekiel has seen and measured much of the temple complex by this point. The size of which is on a massive scale unlike anything we've ever seen in Jerusalem. And in chapter 43, verses 1-5, through Ezekiel sees something that would give him hope and joy, perhaps anything beyond anything he's ever seen before. You recall way back in Ezekiel chapters 9-11, through the man Ezekiel watched in horror as God revealed the wickedness and apostasy of the leaders in Israel. All throughout this terrible revelation, Ezekiel watched as the glory of God promised by God to dwell between the cherry beams above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies departed the temple out the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives where it ascended into heaven. Well, it's been 18 years since Ezekiel saw that vision. 18 years of him knowing that the glory of God had departed from Israel. And his promise on that day is found in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 43. Look at me at verse 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places in their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their post by my posts, and the wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore I have consumed them in mine anger. Now let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. God promises Ezekiel that on the day that Israel ceases their evil, a day that God has already promised will come when He pours out His Spirit upon them. On that day, God says, I will dwell in your midst forever. He has promised to do it. What a 
blessed day when Ezekiel, in a vision of the future, sees the glory of God that departed from the Mount of Olives come back down from the Mount of Olives and walk through the eastern gate from the mount to His throne in the inner sanctuary to His throne on the holiest of holies. God presents the intent of this vision in verses 10-12. through That Israel would be ashamed of their iniquities and turn from them and serve the living and the true God. This vision was intended to show them that there is yet hope, though it has been so many years, 14 years since the siege began, 12 years since the destruction of Jerusalem, all of the things that have happened, though it would seem as though there is no hope, yet God says, if you will but repent and turn to Me, there is hope. Verse 13 begins measurements again. This time of the altar of sacrifice. The Scriptures teach us in these chapters that when the Millennial Temple is established, daily sacrifices will begin again. And as I mentioned, this perhaps causes no small stir of anxiety for the educated Christian, knowing the book of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament sacrifices are done away, being far inferior to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, I believe. Let me just double check that. I have 11 through 14 on your. Uh... Yes. The Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 10, 11-14, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So we know that one offering, the offering of Jesus Christ, uh, fulfilled the um, expectations of the law, fulfilled the sacrificial need, and so from this point on, we would expect there to be no need for sacrifices. So why would there then be sacrifices in the millennium? Well, no one knows for sure, but it is evident that there is no conflict with our theology There's a few reasons why we can understand this or the ways in which we can think about this. First, it is important to point out that this will not be a pure return to the Old Testament system. The system will be similar to the Old Testament Mosaic system, but it will be entirely distinct. Much like the temple was similar to older temples, but was very distinct in its own right. Second, it's important to point out that the sacrifices of Israel were never the means by which their sins were completely removed. They were simply covered. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The sacrifices were akin to what we would consider modern day confession. Modern day confession to God. It was a means of restoring and maintaining fellowship. It was not a means of personal salvation. So it doesn't throw a kink in personal salvation that sacrifices would be restored. All it does is change the means by which 
Um, God is expecting men to maintain fellowship with Him. We also know from history that after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jewish believers were still regularly found observing these sacrifices. They were no longer, however, looking forward to what those sacrifices represented, but rather looking backwards on what those sacrifices represent. And so in much the same way that the uh, devout Israeli who was looking for the kingdom of God would offer his sacrifices eagerly awaiting the day when Jesus Christ would come, when God would send the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world, when Messiah would come to establish his kingdom. So too, the New Testament believers, um, uh, the Jewish believers, would give sacrifices looking back upon the reality that these sacrifices we're now a memorial of that which Jesus Christ had done. So it's not necessarily contradictory for us to see these sacrifices restored as a memorial of that which Jesus Christ had done and as a means of fellowship with God as opposed to looking forward to some secondary sacrifice or being the means of atonement for sin. So for those who are saved, and specifically those in Israel, it will be a manifest memorial of that which Christ had already done similar to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the church age. But we also know that there will be countless numbers of unbelievers during the time of the millennium. Those who enter into the millennium will be born again, but they'll have children. And those children each will have the responsibility of making a choice as to whether or not they will accept Christ as their Savior. In fact, we know that entire nations will not have turned to Christ with their hearts and that by the end of the millennium, as Satan is released from the bottomless pit, he will deceive the nations and there will be a countless number of men and women who are deceived into following Satan in rebellion against God. And so, it's not necessarily unexpected that There would be sacrifices, not just for the believer to look back upon a memorial, but perhaps for the unbeliever to keep them in right standing with God, even though they do not believe on the name of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us that during the time of the millennium, Jesus Christ will rule from Zion with a rod of iron. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 and 17 says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso shall not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And so there will be people in the millennial reign people who are refusing to go up and to worship the Lord as they are told to do, and Jesus, ruling with a rod of iron, will cause famine and pestilence to come upon the nations of those who refuse to come and worship Jesus Christ. And so these millennial sacrifices and physical observances will perhaps be for their benefit as well in order that they, though they have not accepted Christ as their Savior, might still receive that temporary blood atonement with which to find some means of um, relationship or some means of obedience within the economy of the millennium. 
So we continue in chapter 43, verses 13 through 17 with a description of the altar. The altar was 19 and a quarter feet long. A part of it, uh, part, excuse me, a height, 19 and a quarter feet high, a part of it being underground. 17 and a half feet of it were above ground. The hearth of the altar was 21 feet square. That would be this most innermost square there, 21 feet square. Verses 18 through 27 describe a seven-day ceremony to be done by the priest of Zadok for the purpose of consecrating this altar unto God. You can see the various parts of the altar from ground level and the stairs going up to the altar. Each of these rings, the 31.5 feet, would be this bottommost. 28 feet would be the next level up. 24.5 feet would be the next level up. And then, of course, we mentioned already, 21 feet would be the actual hearth itself of the altar as we see the top view and the side view portion of the altar being underground. This seven-day feast done by the priests of Zadok following that feast the priest will present the people's burnt offering and fellowship offerings on the altar. And this will mark, in Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 18 through 27, the official beginning of the function of the Millennial Temple and the full resumption of God's fellowship with His people following their chastening and redemption during the seven years of tribulation. So once the temple is built, once the altar is cleansed by a seven-day feast and a seven-day ceremony by the priests of Zadok, the full restoration of Israel into fellowship with the Lord will begin. Now, thus far, everything that we've seen has been very descriptive and fairly academic. In fact, the last four chapters have been more suited, as I've mentioned, to the interests of architects than necessarily to the interests of theologians. But in chapter 44... Ezekiel begins to see the actual operation of the temple complex. Chapter 44 will be our last chapter this evening, and within it we will find a very important application that I would like us to strongly consider this evening. Chapter 44, verse 1, says this, Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. As the angel brings Ezekiel back to the eastern gate for the third time, they began at the eastern gate. He was at the eastern gate when the, the glory of the Lord returned to the temple. Now he's back to the eastern gate for the third time. And as he gets to this eastern gate, the gate where the Lord had re-entered the city, Ezekiel was careful to note that the gate was shut. Notice in verse 2, he says, Then said the Lord unto me, this is the Lord speaking now, not the angel, the Lord says, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. Except for one. He says, It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat the bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. So there is one exception to this divine prohibition. No one may go in and out the eastern gate with the exception of a man known as 
the prince. The door is open for the prince, and as we established in Ezekiel 37, as we established in Ezekiel 34 as well, this prince is likely to be the resurrected King David, who will, according to verse 3, sit in the eastern gate before the Lord. We'll learn more about this prince next time we're together in the chapters to come. As the angel brings uh, Ezekiel um, to this gate, the angel then brings Ezekiel toward the north gate in verse 4, where we beheld the glory of the Lord fill the house of God. And Ezekiel fell upon his face in humble awe. Look with me in verse 4. Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and all the laws thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house with every going forth of the sanctuary. And thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O ye house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations, in that ye have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when ye offered my bread, the fat and the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations, and ye have not kept the charge of mine holy things." But ye have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. Thus saith the Lord God, No stranger uncircumcised in heart nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And the Levites that are gone away far from me, when Israel went astray, which went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. God recounts in chapter 44, verses 5-14, through 14, how the temple had operated in the years that Israel had been responsible for its administration. They'd filled it with idols. They had allowed the uncircumcised in heart and in flesh in. They had polluted it with corrupt offerings. Everything that we saw in Ezekiel 9-11, through 11, God is describing here and saying, this was a problem, this cannot nor will it, happen again. See, because now God was in charge. And now no one uncircumcised, not in flesh or in heart, will ever enter into His sanctuary. No stranger will come in. Furthermore, God says, those Levites, which had gone astray from Him in the years past and followed after the idols of other lands, those Levites would bear their iniquity. They will be allowed to minister in the temple They'll be allowed to keep the gates and slay the burnt offerings, but because they were polluted, having ministered before idols, verses 13 and 14 declare that they shall not be allowed to come near unto the Lord, nor will they be allowed to minister in the most holy things of the temple. This is the consequence of their pollution. Look at it with me. Verse 13 says, They shall not come near unto me to do the office of the priest unto me, nor to come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. But I will make them keepers of the charge of the house for all the service thereof and for all that shall be done therein. 
Then notice what God says in verse 15 and following. It's very significant. He says, But the priests of the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me. And they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord. God declares that the only Levites that were allowed to minister directly to him would be from the family of Zadok. And why? Who is Zadok? And what is the qualification of this family? Why did they get in where the others fell short? Why were they the ones who God chose to honor, to bless and to use? Well, because they were usable. Because they had been faithful. Because they had been the ones who didn't turn away from the Lord. Because they had been the ones who remained obedient when everyone else turned away and rebelled. And so through the final 13 verses of this chapter, God gives all of the regulations that will accompany this very special priesthood given to the family of Zadok. These regulations demand righteousness, purity, exclusivity, and a willingness to teach the people the difference between the holy and between the profane, between the right and the wrong. Thus will the priests be very special, very usable vessels unto the Lord. Notice verse 23. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. This will be the privilege of the priests of Zadok in the Millennial Temple. And as we close, I would like to take a few moments and apply these truths. Who was the family of Zadok? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Zadok in Scripture, except that he was a high priest during the days of David and Solomon. That he had remained with David in the days when David's sons attempted to destroy him. That he had been faithful to Solomon. And that as well, as we have talked about in the past in the book of Ezekiel, all the way till the days of Jeremiah and Isaiah, the priests of the family of Zadok were faithful unto the Lord and unto the King. And that was what was being rewarded. And our application this evening is this. God uses people made usable by personal obedience, separated living, and personal holiness. The family at Zadok had proven themselves to be a very peculiar and particular family. When all the nations stood against God's anointed, David, Zadok stood with him. When all the nation wandered into idolatry, Zadok stood with God. When all the nation had defiled themselves, Zadok remained undefiled. These were the choices that Zadok and his family had made, not because they saw 
the immediate benefits. In fact, it could have meant their life on several occasions. But because they feared God, they loved God, and they obeyed God. We're all aware of the fact that we stand before God righteous and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. That because we are under the blood of Jesus Christ, we are as good as righteous in the eyes of the Lord so that one day as we stand before the Lord, He will see Christ in us and He will declare us righteous. We will be justified in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 tells us this, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We know also that God uses those whom He chooses to use. That it is not our talents, it is not our abilities, or our knowledge that, that by which God um, desires or decides to use us. It is rather His good pleasure. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 say, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? But though we will one day stand before God, unblameable and unreprovable and righteous in His sight, the Bible clearly teaches us that we have an obligation to personal practical holiness and separation upon this earth. And though God chooses whom He will use, there is the definitive and absolute method by which He goes about choosing those whom He will use, and it is tied to your choices. Is this not what we've been learning about throughout our entire series in 1 Corinthians? Is this not what 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27 through 27 say? Paul said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but ye, or we, an incorruptible crown. We strive for the crown because there are rewards for the faithful. Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 16, verses 24-28 through 28 said this, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He would go on to say, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So God uses people made usable by personal obedience, separated living, and personal holiness. The whole of Scripture makes it clear that one day you'll stand before God. And though we've had a lot of academic, though we've had a lot of architectural stuff today, what we can draw from this is this line of Zadok. The particular line of priests that have the privilege by God's grace of standing before Him. And they have that privilege not because they were born into the line of Aaron, not because they were born into the line of Eli. Specifically, they have the privilege because they were faithful to God when all else were not. One day you will stand before God and you will be perfect. God chooses who He wants 
to use for what He wants to use. But just like you and me, God uses the best tool that He can for His particular job. Just like you would use a sharp tool instead of a dull tool, God is going to use the sharp tool, not the dull tool. Just like you're going to use the sturdy tool, not the flimsy tool, God is going to use the sturdy tool, not the flimsy tool. And what I mean by this is that God uses people who are made usable by personal obedience, by separated living, and by personal holiness. Our First Corinthians series has been lesson after lesson after lesson of the dangers of false Christianity, of separating the holy from the profane, uh, of not separating the holy from the profane, of living within the license of this Christian life. And while we certainly can do those things, those are not the people that God uses. The ones that God will use to accomplish His purposes are the ones who have made themselves usable. And so the question is, is God using you? And if He's not using you, why isn't He using you? Are you playing games with God? Are you pretending to be usable? Well, God knows. Are you pretending? Are you playing the game but not really in the game? Are you making excuses? Well, it's time to stop. Whatever is holding you back from personal obedience, separated living, from personal holiness, is it really worth it? Was it really worth it for all of those sons of Aaron to follow after rebellion? Or was it worth it for the sons of Zadok to stand in the day that God asked them to stand so that thousands of years later they might stand before God and minister before Him in the Millennial Temple? Can we not all join together as a determined group of men and women to be right so that God might use us in magnificent ways for Him? And that is the challenge that I leave for you this evening. Not necessarily a challenge drawn directly from God's Word in uh, Word, but certainly an example. The sons of Zadok are a stellar example to us of men who were faithful and were rewarded by God for their faithfulness. Let's pray.